morning, church. We'll be continuing in Matthew. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, it's going to be chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you revile, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for the reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you as your congregation, as your children, Father, worshiping you and praising you, Father, for who you are and what you are and what you do for us, Lord. Lord, we trust in what you tell us in your scriptures. You told us that you would foretell the future for us so that we know that everything else you tell us is true. And in the book of Daniel, your prophet, you told us that this day would be the day Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. And it happened just as you said it would happen, Father. So we trust everything you have for us, Lord. We trust your word. We trust you, God. We raise up Jackie and ask your anointing over him as he has your message for us today to further explain these passages that we read. And so, Lord, we just ask your blessing on this congregation, your blessing over Jackie, and on everyone here. Lord, we raise up the teachers of our Sunday school kids and ask your blessing on them and these children. Lord, just bless their lives, draw them close to you, and let them know who you are also. And so we pray all these things to your precious son, Jesus. Amen. And children, you are released.
This morning we're going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at uh, what many people have called the greatest uh, piece of ethical teaching on the face of the on the face of the earth. The Sermon on the Mount is going to go from Matthew chapter five all the way through Matthew chapter seven, and it has a focus. The thesis or focus of the Sermon on the Mount is the need for righteousness. And when we talk about that, you may remember, when we talk about the need for righteousness, there's, there's two ways that's expressed. The first way, when we talk about righteousness, that it is, um, that it is expressed is positional righteousness. <clears throat> that's a righteousness that we have through Christ. It's what the Bible calls being justified. It's what salvation is. To be justified by faith. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he who knew no sin becomes our sin sacrifice that we might become the righteousness of God. So we become positionally righteous through Jesus Christ. The the second type of righteousness the Bible talks about is practical. So once we have become positionally righteous in Christ, then... He gives us the gift, Scripture tells us of, of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to see our lives transformed. That becomes practical righteousness. That means our lives change. We are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit through the blood of Jesus Christ, and our life is changed. Now, as we look at this theme in the Sermon on the Mount, we also want to understand, we went through the Beatitudes a couple of weeks ago, we went through them all, and this is a description of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's laying out, he's speaking to his disciples as he lays out these things. And as he lays out this theme in verse 20, we'll get there in about five minutes, in verse 20 it says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So your righteousness has to exceed the the scribes and the Pharisees. The the crazy thing is for them in their day, if they were to say, you know, if only two people go to heaven, one's a scribe and the other's a Pharisee. And Jesus said to them, you have to be better than them. Now, what is the difference? Those people that he's pointing to have a third type of righteousness. It's called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when you paint the outside. You guys have heard of putting lipstick on a pig? If you don't change the heart of a man, the man is not transformed and he will, it doesn't matter what he looks like on the outside. It doesn't matter how much money he gives away, how many good deeds he does. If he has not been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if his life has not been changed, if he's not positionally righteous because he has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will be just like those scribes and Pharisees. You remember what Jesus called them? Whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Now, the Bible is full of of beautiful illustrations from page to page, from 
from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So I, I hope you're doing the reading through the Bible with us in a year because you get a chance to see all of those. But one of the beautiful things that you'll see in the Old Testament is <clears throat> all of these rules that make you unclean. And sometimes you'll say to yourself, my goodness, why, do, why is this rule here? Now, now I'm unclean because of this, or I'm unclean. I, I ate a shellfish. I'm unclean. I, I uh, touched something that was unclean. I'm unclean. And the, <clears throat> the point that we're being taught in the Old Testament is for you and I, we touch all kinds of things in the world, and all those things, anything we touch that is unclean makes us unclean. The only person ever in the history of creation who did that backwards was Jesus. And you first see it illustrated when the leper who's covered with leprosy, you would never touch a leper, right? Because you might get what he has. But what did Jesus do? That's right. He reached out and he touched him. And he showed everyone, I can make what is unclean clean. You remember the dream of Peter? Three times a sheet comes before Peter in Acts chapter 10, and it's full of all kind of animals and creepy, crawly things, probably stuff you don't want to eat. Maybe it even had roaches on it. I don't know. But it, it had, and then the Lord said, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And Peter said, oh no, Lord. Okay. So if ever in your mind you think about those two words, they don't go together ever. <laughs> right? No, Lord. That doesn't make any sense. He says, no, Lord. And the Lord said, call us not, some things I only hear King James, sorry. Call us not unclean what I have cleansed. Now, this is not a sermon about food. This is a sermon about changed lives. Is Jesus able to cleanse our lives? So it's about a relationship with Christ. Huh? Right? The Bible tells us in the, in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus Christ has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe. Turn from your old life, turn to Christ. And he will make you clean. That's what being saved is all about. And so he's telling us these beatitudes. He's saying this is what a disciple looks like. And then in this section we're looking at now, he says, this is how a disciple influences the world. This is how you make a dent in that crazy darkness that we walk around in day by day. This is how we see Jesus Christ through us change our world. When Jesus finishes his sermon in Matthew 7, verse 28, the scripture says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They're just blown away. By the things that he lays out. So I hope this morning as we look at this section of scripture, God's spirit will move in our heart and call us to understand what it is to be salt and light in this crazy world. True righteousness, a life surrendered to Christ and empowered by his spirit. It, true righteousness will be demonstrated before others. People will see. You will influence those around you. Look what it says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under 
people's feet. This is an emphatic plural statement, okay? Don't, don't check out because I said those words. Let me tell you what that means. This is personal and plural, okay? This is personal and plural. So Jesus is talking to his disciples individually and he's talking to them corporately. And he's saying to them, the people who follow Christ, he's saying to them, look, you are salt of the earth. And the scripture would lay out, well, history would tell us there were two uses for salt. One was seasoning and the other was preserving. So he's saying to his disciples, you are to be seasoning of the world. You are to be a preservative in the world. In fact, if you think about that idea and you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and it talks about the Antichrist and when the Antichrist will be revealed, it says, except that until he who restrains is taken out of the way. And the idea of the restrainer is the preserver, the one who is making it so that there's a influence in the world. Curious if you start to think about things like that. We are to be salt of the world, salt on earth. As a preservative, in Numbers 18, 19, it says, All holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give you to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever. That's God saying there to the Levites, listen, this never changes. It's set in stone. It's a covenant of salt. It's preserved forever. But we also see the idea of seasoning. Listen, in Job 6.6, 6, it says, Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? Paul, building on that idea in Colossians chapter 4, says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Now, what is this all about? Listen, the world needs believers who are salty because the world is corrupt. The world needs believers who are light because the world is dark. Believers in the world are to be a seasoning of the, we ought to taste like Christ. We ought to reflect his light in a dark world. This is what we are being challenged to do. Jesus is calling his disciples against corruption and to prevent the moral decay of the world. Now, how do we do that? Practically, as we live our lives, in the, in the conversations we have, we are seasoned with salt. Listen, Jesus' disciples, after Jesus is taken up into the heavens and the disciples are left on earth to try to figure life out, right? And they're going about sharing the gospel. The Bible tells us around Acts chapter 4 that uh, the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin and questioned. These same disciples, you know, the, the one Peter who denied the Lord three times, the same disciples who when Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. You remember those guys, right? They all ran for the hills. They don't like the idea of 
of uh, uh, the conflict that was brewing. So you have all this conflict, all this stuff going on, and they all ran. But now they're standing before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin says to them, listen, guys, listen, look, we are saying you may not preach in the name of Jesus at all. If you do, we will beat you again. And those same disciples, they look at them and they said, you know, whether or not it's right for us to obey you or God, you decide. But for us, we can't stop preaching the name of Jesus. And then the Sanhedrin said, these guys are a bunch of unlearned men. Look at them. Bunch of fishermen, zealots, ragtag, fugitive fleet. But they said this phrase. But they said they were with Jesus. Because being with Jesus ought to change everything else. How we talk, what we say, what we do, the parts of our life, all of those things, they ought to flow through the reality that we have been with Christ. So we want to be salty. If we've lost our saltiness, if there's no seasoning of Christ in our life, if in our conversation, if in our times with other people, no Jesus comes through at all, the Lord says, what good is your saltiness? No one can taste it. It is possible to be so top secret that nobody knows who you are. The Lord's not looking for those kind of disciples. He's looking for disciples who want to be distinct. We don't want to look like the world, sound like the world, or act like the world. We want to look like Jesus, sound like Jesus, act like Jesus. There should be a distinction. It's heartbreaking when people say that the church looks just like the world, isn't it? We don't want to look like the world. We want to look like Christ. So we want to be agents of change and redemption. That's being salty. That means there's times we have to stand. There's times we have to say no. There's times we have to pray like the disciples did. After that meeting with the Sanhedrin, the scriptures say that they gathered together in the upper room and they were pretty freaked out. And so they they pray. They're praying that God would make them bold. And the scripture says, as they prayed in the spirit, <clears throat> that the Holy Spirit came into that room, blew like a rushing wind, and gave them boldness. When we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, everybody always wants to talk about tongues. I don't know why, it's just natural. We want to talk about tongues. But you know, my favorite gift that's sown by the Spirit in the book of Acts is the gift of boldness that made disciples who were afraid stand. That seems pretty practical, doesn't it? Made disciples who were afraid able to stand. Listen, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9:27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself become disqualified. He's saying, look, I have to 
keep myself in control. I have to keep my focus. I want to live a life reflecting Christ. I'm not earning salvation. I'm doing this because I've already been saved. And the transforming power of Jesus Christ ought to infect every part of my life. Where I go, what I do, what I say. We want to see this. Now he goes on in verse 14. You are light, the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Listen. The worth of light is not evident unless it's seen. If we're standing in the darkness and I say, I got a flashlight. And you say, man, that's great. But I don't ever turn it on. It ain't no good for nothing. Right? If you've ever been with me and we go to Israel and we go to Hezekiah's tunnel and we get in this skinny little claustrophobic tunnel half filled with water and we're wading our way through and we're holding in the old days, I think now they give you little flashlights. Do you remember, babe? Where are you at? Did they give us flashlights last time? We brought our own. We used to bring candles. So you'd hold candles walking through Hezekiah's tunnel, and it's full of water. So occasionally, somebody'd stumble or trip and splash, and there goes the candle. Poof. And when the candle goes, poof, there's no light in there but that candle. It's dark. We want to shine light. This, this light is not secret at all. Salt works secretly. You may not always see the salt, right? But you can taste it. But light, you can always see. The light is evident. Salt is not. So by being salt as Christians, we influence the world through our character that has been transformed by Christ. By being light, we influence the world through the things we do. Our works that glorify, cause people to glorify the Father. Right? The things that we do. Scripture is full of this idea of light. You're going to see this idea of light everywhere. It's it's all over the place. The Psalms is full of light. Jesus, in fact, in John chapter 8, declared, I am the light of the world. He who comes to me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So you have this comparison throughout the book of Proverbs as well. Light equals life. The Proverbs is a story about wise, light, life, and the fool, and darkness, right, and death. So the the picture painted by the proverbs is which road are you going to walk life or death light or dark wise or fool these are the contrasts that we see throughout the book it says in psalms 18 4 so the lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness and according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight god is always watching in Psalm 27, 1, it says, The Lord is the light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This light that we have in the Lord. Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is a fountain of life. In your light we see light. So we have this reference throughout the Psalms. The Psalm 118 says, The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So this idea is that the Lord is light. He gives light through his word and a life that has been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ to enter into positional righteousness. And through that transformation, we start to see practical righteousness in our life, right? Our, the things we do changes. We start to see the light that we've learned about in Christ reflecting through our life. And we don't take that light and hide it under a bushel. You're supposed to let it shine, right? We're supposed to let the light shine so that our good deeds are seen before men so that we're doing the things that Christ would have us do it's it's a, there's this beautiful contrast in the scriptures when we look at the life of Christ and we see how how Christ expresses out to the very lowest of the low the 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 greatest sinners of their day did not feel condemned by Christ, but would be, were drawn to his light. And as they're drawn to his light, they're elevated, right? As he, as he bestows his light upon them, as he saves them, he's able to lift them from that place. Christ doesn't enter into our life to leave us in the darkness. The Bible says in Ephesians, you and I, we were once darkness. But he, Jesus Christ, had made us children of the light. And if we are children of the light, then let us shine. How are disciples influencing the world? Our world is a little chaotic and crazy, right? And sometimes we don't know exactly what we ought to do. And so maybe we, maybe we make some mistakes along the way. Well, you just need to think of the practical application of what Jesus is saying here. So you want to be just the right amount of salt in the meal. Is it possible to have too much salt? So just the right amount of salt, right? We want to be salty. We want our conversation. We want the things we say, the things we bring into a group of friends or family, the stuff that we bring in the family gathering. Just by us being there, we want just the right amount of saltiness to make people thirsty for Jesus. But at the same time, we want to do things that light up the darkness around us so that the world is not without a witness. Listen, one of the craziest times for the nation of Israel was uh, the 400 silent years, a period of time through which much of the book of Daniel focuses on. And in that 400 silent years, what that means is that the, the 
covenant people of God, the, the Israelites, had no prophet. That means there was nobody for 400 years to stand up and say, hey, God says you need to repent. Hey, the things you're doing aren't right. You, you need to repent, get your life back on track. That prophets were not there. Most of the time, people think of prophets as those guys who show up and tell you the future. But for the most part of the Old Testament, prophets were the men calling the children of Israel to repentance. Hey, you guys aren't supposed to slaughter your children. You need to get back right with the Lord. And they would go to the king. They, they didn't waste as much time standing on the corner with the people. Isaiah would go rap on the king's door. Elijah, they called the king called Elijah, you troubler of the nation. You troubler, the troublers here. He never tells me nothing good. And Elijah says, well, if you stop sinning, I'll tell you something good. There were 400 years with no voice. Then Jesus comes. John the Baptist, the first voice, right, pointing. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's preparing the nation to receive the words of Messiah. Messiah comes. He talks about what it is to be a disciple. He begins to, to heal. He begins to cleanse. He begins to teach them the things that really matter. And then when he goes away, he leaves not prophets. He leaves disciples. Who just by their presence in the world. Ought to be a seasoning. And a light. To a dark place. Was never God's plan that, that men, the disciples would withdraw. Be gone. You know, hide in their little uh, covens. And, and be... Uh, set apart, so set apart from the world that the world never saw them. No, the attitude was that we are to be in the world, a part of the world, and the things we do are to be seen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. It is not a result of works, so no one can boast. For we are his poema. We are his masterpiece. His poem. His. God's writing in our lives. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That we should reflect the light of Christ in the things we do. Salty in our speech. Light in our presence so that the world can see Jesus in us and will glorify the Father. Isn't that what it says? That they'll see you and glorify the Father? In 1 Corinthians 10.31 it says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. I'm, I, I tried, this is a, this is, Kind of a good thing for, for me just to change the way I think. You know, I was talking to Jordan about this uh, maybe a week ago or two weeks ago, and we were talking about pleasing God. And I said, you know, what I really like to think about rather than how do I please God or how do I make God happy, I just want to honor him. So I want to think about doing things that honor him, bring glory to God. Jesus said he only said words that honored the Father. He only did things that honored the Father. That's a good example, right, for us? 
to say, that's what I want to do. So before you just pop off, you know, you got, you got that sharp tongue ready to roll. I have one of those. Anybody have a sharp tongue? Yeah, I got a sharp tongue. Uh, I'm not really sure what the cure is. Probably should cut it off, but we're going to see in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to tell you, if your right hand causes you to sin. So as we, uh, uh, but we, we, what we want to do, what we want to see being expressed through us is not the excuse, well, it's got a sharp tongue, I, that's just how I am. I want to think about, am I seasoned with salt? Am I honoring God by what I'm about to say? And so sometimes I start to say something and I just stop. You know, there's, there's no fruit in that. I want to be, do you want to be salt and light? Do you want to honor God in the things you say and do? 1 Peter 4.11 says this, Whoever speaks, speak as one uh, who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, serve by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God being glorified. Whatever we do, however we do it, it's the same thing Paul said, whatever we do, however we do it, let's do things that are going to honor God our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus goes on in verse 17 to say, now do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I want you to understand, this is a, this is a Hebrew idiom, the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The same scriptures Paul was talking about in Timothy when he said that the, that the scriptures are inspired, God breathed. The word he used, the word that Paul used is graphe. He's talking about the writings. Here's, some people don't understand this. Paul was still writing the New Testament at the time. So when he talks about the written scriptures, the people who are, who are listening, when it says Paul was sharing the scriptures and proving that Jesus was the Christ and that he ought to suffer when he's in Philippi or when he's in Corinth, he's proving from the Old Testament. He's sharing the New Testament is being written. But he's talking about the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, look, that's not gone. It hasn't been abolished. I have not come to abolish them, he said, but to fulfill them. Because true righteousness is, is directed by the things God has told us. We don't just throw everything away. He's laid out for us these things so that we would follow them. The idea of Jesus saying, I've, I've fulfilled this. He's saying, I'm, I'm the peace that's been missing. We look at the, the law, and, the, and we're going to see Paul talk about it in Galatians. Paul's going to say in Galatians, look, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. The law shows us that we can't do it. We look at the Old Testament, and all that should lead us to Christ. It ought to lead us to, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. What we shouldn't do is look at that and go, you know, Israel's a bunch of dummies. If we did it, we'd do way better. That seems to be the way people think in our world today. Like, for example, for hundreds of years... People have tried the experiment of socialism, and it has always run into about anywhere between 6 and 20 million dead. But people still today say, 
Well, they're just not doing it right. What we ought to do is look at history and go, and go yeah, that's, that experiment doesn't work. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how many times you try it. We look at the experiment of the nation of Israel. What do we see in the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel is filled with people, just like you and me, who are hard-headed, just like you and me, who are stiff-necked, just like you and me. And when we read their stories, it ought to teach us to say, I need a savior. Jesus is saying, look, I am the fulfillment of these things. I am the part that makes all of this that we've been talking about and make it all come together and make sense. The fulfillment of scripture is bringing to fruition the complete meaning. And the complete meaning happens when Jesus Christ is part of the equation. He fulfills Luke 24 44 then he said to them Jesus is speaking these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled because if we want to understand the things we don't understand we have to look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ we need to understand it through that lens. Romans 10:4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is not the end of the law. He is the end of the law. Don't leave these two words out, they matter for righteousness. Can any man be made righteous by the law? No. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We're not made righteous by the law, but let me give you a little test. Is it still wrong to murder? Steal? Lie? Okay, so the law didn't go away? It's still there. It helps us understand the character of God. It teaches us lessons about how we ought to love our neighbor, how we ought to love God, how we ought to love people. That's all part of the law. It's all part of the law. And where the law cries out, you're unclean when you do this, and you're unclean when you do that, and you're unclean when you do this, and you're unclean when you do that, Jesus shouts, but I make you clean. You understand? He is the cleansing agent. Galatians 3.19 says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Offspring, it's talking about Jesus Christ. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law brought in by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, though God is one. In the law then, contrary, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. How are we made righteous? By faith in Christ, right? We are justified by faith in Christ. Faith alone, sola fide. But if you are justified by faith alone, it never acts alone. The root of faith brings forth the fruit of faith. 
which means you turn on your flashlight in the dark. And you begin to shine like Christ. Galatians goes on in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. You ever feel that way when you read the law? The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come we are no longer under a guardian. Now, murdering people is still wrong. But we don't need the law to tell us that because we have Christ. And love will always do more than the law requires. Love will always do more. If you love the Lord your God and you love your neighbor, nobody has to tell you not to steal your neighbor's wife. Nobody has to tell you not to move your boundaries, move your fences over into his property. Nobody has to tell you that because the law of love, love always does more than the law requires. The expression that we see. So Jesus, in building this, he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law. Did you, did you read that? For truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away. Is there a heaven and earth today? Not one iota, not one jot, not a dot, not a tittle, not a piece, not a part will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that all is accomplished means all. We're looking for the return of the king. And on that day, Everything will pass. We have him. We don't need nothing else. But until then, we need his word to guide us, don't we? We need his word to teach us. It says in Hebrews 1, verse 10, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. No end. The same way he talks about his word. Hebrews 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have a steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner, having become a high priest for how long? Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He is our high priest. It does not pass away. It is absolutely fulfilled and completed in Christ Jesus. So what is our position then? For if we are disciples, we're following Jesus, we recognize that, that our righteousness, the transformed lives that we have should be expressed in the world like salt and like light. 
We recognize that the word of God is giving us instruction on how to honor God, how to glorify God, how to walk with him. Then he says in verse 19, our position, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We don't, we don't turn anything off. We see it all fulfilled in Christ. Whoever turns off the least of these. Who, James 2 verse 10 says, Whoever keeps a whole law but fails in one point is guilty of how much? He's guilty of all. So, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do one and not the other, you are still guilty before God. In Deuteronomy 12, 32, it says, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. that sound familiar? Seems like there's another book that ends like that, isn't there? You shall not add to it or take away from it. Now, he's talking about the word. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the scriptures that were laid down, that were breathed out by God. And all of those things are as a tutor for us to lead us to Christ. So don't, don't cut stuff out. Don't go, you know what, you don't ever need to read that. Just, just, just ignore all that. Ignore everything and, and don't be a part of, of those things. Look, what he wants us to say, he says, don't teach people to, to cut these things out. Teach them to know. Teach them to know me. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I love I love this. Uh, I, I, won't, I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, I love this, this person's ministry. You guys can tell me his name later. You know who I'm talking about. One of the things he does, he goes out and as he shares the gospel, is he, he shares our position before God. Because nobody comes to a Savior if they don't know they need to be saved. Do you understand that? Yeah, great comfort. So one of the things he does is he always talks to people. Now, everybody always says, I'm a good person, right? We're all good people, everybody on earth. And then he says, have you ever lied? And the guy says, yeah. What do you call someone who lies? Liar. You ever taken anything that wasn't yours? What do you call somebody who does that? So a minute ago you said you were a good person, but now we see you're a liar and a thief. What's the purpose of that? So that people know I need a savior. Because Romans chapter 1 is true. The Romans chapter 1 says no one needs to know there is a God. They all know there's a God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And they will be judged for it. They will face the wrath of God. So the, the law still has a point. Are you saved by the law? Does the law save you? No. It doesn't save you. The law brings you to Christ. That's why Jesus said, I fulfill the law. Because prior to him, all the law did was bring you to a place where you said, what am I supposed to do? What do I got to bring another sacrifice? 
You know what David said in Psalm 51? David said, there is no sacrifice for my sin. David sinned with a high hand. You know what that means? He knew what he did was wrong. Okay. Anybody ever done something they knew was wrong? Okay. In the Old Testament, just so you're aware, in the Old Testament, a sin that you knew was wrong, there's no sacrifice for. So David said, there's no sacrifice I can give or I would give it. But the sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. See, what David recognized in the law, not having Christ, seeing him afar off, just in the law, what David recognized in the law is, I can't do this. So I'm going to put myself before God, and I'm going to say, have mercy on me, what? Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus talk about that? Doesn't he tell a story like that somewhere? You're right, he does. Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9. Last scripture, and we're going to pray. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I, have, I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, listen. This is before Christ is on the cross. Jesus is pointing to this example of, of a, an event that probably happened multiple times. And he said, that one who cried out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, left justified. He, he leaves saved. And the guy who prays, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. He's not okay. David, who sinned with a high hand, recognized, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Did God have mercy on David? He did. Before the cross. He gave David grace. Right? Right? Jesus Christ fulfills the life. He fills in all the gaps so that we can look and go, okay, now I know, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner by the blood of Jesus Christ who died, who paid the price for my sin. I can call out for mercy, not because I'm perfect or good or something special about me, no, but because I know who I am. Do you know who you are? And if you come to Christ and you call on his name, he will save you, but he won't leave you that way. And then he says to you, his disciple, go be salt and light. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for the truth of your word, what your word declares, God, how your word 
challenges us. You, you want us to know you. Ask us to search the scriptures for Jesus would declare to the scribes and the Pharisees, you search these scriptures all the time because you're looking for life. And you're trying to find life in what doesn't give life. The Bible declares the law never gave life. The law took it. The law said you have offended the God of the universe. You're guilty. That's what the law Guilty, 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 guilty. Jesus Christ said, I have come to take your guilt upon myself. I have come to be your sin sacrifice. Because you need a savior. And that savior is Christ the Lord. Who walked into the temple and stood before the priests who in a few days were going to shout crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And he presented himself to them to see if they could find any spot or wrinkle any sin, anything that would keep him from being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And at his trial, they made this proclamation. There is no sin in him. So he is the perfect sacrifice. He makes me clean. Then he challenges me as a disciple who has been blessed in the relationship with Christ, who has seen that positional righteousness through the power of his blood to live out my faith practically like salt and light. To not throw away the word, but hold fast to the word and teach the things that Jesus commanded. He said, go into every nation. Make disciples of all men. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them the things I taught you. And I will be with you until the end of the age. Lord God, we are so thankful for your presence carrying us through. And I pray, Lord, that you be glorified and magnified as we give you praise in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.